to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Phil Gillette. Uh, Phil has worked in movies, TV, comics, and video games. Uh, his screen credits include the sci-fi film Europa Report, starring Charlotte Copley, uh, the surreal horror thriller They Remain, starring William Jackson Harper, uh, and Netflix's multiple Emmy award-winning series Love, Death, and Robots, an animated... I would I would describe it as an animated Black Mirror. I don't know if that is an offensive <laughs> description to you. Uh, it's uh, not, but, not offensive to me, okay. no. Not okay, good, good. <laughs> um, but it, 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 that's a, it's, it's a solid shorthand. Uh, but today, I'm having him on the show because he went... He, he, out of the blue, pitched me to talk about The Spine of Night, the animated film that he co-directed and co-wrote with Morgan Galen King. And I'm almost hesitant to provide a shorthand for this movie, but something like something like heavy metal uh, by way of Dungeons and Dragons, which may be heavy metal already. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but uh, Phil, thank you for being on the show. Let's talk about The Spine of Night and kind of how that came to be. And most importantly, I I want to I want to describe it to people because it's 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 a it's a very interesting looking movie. It is a rotoscoped film. You don't see a lot of rotoscope uh, animation anymore. It's all you know CGI and the occasional hand drawn thing. But rotoscoping, how does rotoscoping work? Explain to people what rotoscoping is and how you actually do it and make it make it look like it looks on the on the screen. Yeah. So rotoscoping is a very old animation technique, almost as old as animation itself. And and basically at at its core, what you're doing is you are capturing you're filming a live a live performance and then you are hand drawing over it to create the look um, and and hand drawing over it is a little bit reductive because really what you're doing is using that actor's performance as as reference for the animation that's going on so what it what it creates is uh, an, an animated look that is different than your standard cartooning so like there are very very famous, um, examples of rotoscoping, like the dancing, like it, it's a technique that old Disney, the old Disney studio used occasionally. Like they used it for, I believe the dancing in um, Sleeping Beauty, I think is rotoscope. And I, and I think mm -hmm. that probably is the movie that has the most of their rotoscoping in it. You can see a little bit of it in, uh, there's like one shot in the old He-Man cartoon that's rotoscoped, but the most famous practitioner of it is Ralph Bakshi, who made uh, the 70s animated Lord of the Rings and Fire and Ice, which is the movie he made with Frank Frazetta, are very famous examples of it. So, to, to and we did it, and then I guess to jump forward a little bit, there are more recent examples like Scanner Darkly and mm -hmm. Waking Life are both rotoscope movies, but they're, to my knowledge, they're a combination of um, uh, some kind of filter and then some um, hand-drawn animation. For, for The Spine of Night, we did it uh, the most painful, most time-consuming way you can do it, which is to say we did it like Bakshi did it. So we we filmed everybody, not in motion capture suits, like literally just in strange-looking white outfits with some like reference lines literally drawn on the clothes, recorded the whole movie that way, cut it, cut a very strange live action of it, and then over the course of many years, very painstakingly hand-drew the entire the entire thing. So it's a, yeah, it's a process. <laughs> yeah. So let me, let me ask, because uh, I, I assume, I assume that, uh, you know, the, the, the folks who are credited as actors in this were not wearing 
the strange the strange yeah. by two. And I, and I mentioned this because you have a you have a very solid cast of voice actors here: Richard E. Grant, Lucy Lawless, Patton Oswalt, uh, Joe Manganiello. Manganiello. I can't ever pronounce his last name. I'm sorry. I think uh, he says it Manganiello. Actually, Manganiello. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, there we go. But uh, but a really great cast of of actors here. But I assume they came in after the animation had taken place, right? Yeah, so that's largely correct, with one exception. Uh, Betty Gabriel, who people know from Get Out and from a lot of other great Blumhouse movies, and um, man, she was on a TV show with J.K. Simmons, the name of which I can't remember. It was sort of like a m- multiverse TV show she was on. Um, anyway. Counterpart. Yes, Counterpart. Thank you, yeah. yes. So she is... She, was actually in our very strange warehouse space and shot with us. But that was before Get Out. It was, I mean, we shot that live action reference many, many years ago. So we um, cast her, I think the day after she graduated from Juilliard, she got on a train and came here to Providence where we shot. And, and so she she actually was in those in those costumes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, everybody else came on later to, to do their voices, which was weird in some sense because we were at that point so deep into the animation that, you know, they had some leeway with their performances, but they also, you know, the, the process for them was more like doing um, ADR for a live action film and less like doing, you know, what a, a more standard animation performance. With some exceptions, like uh, Richard E. Grant's character, a lot of his, he wears a mask and a lot of his performance is voiceover. So he had quite a bit of leeway. And we let Patton, because he's so good at that kind of stuff, do some ad-libbing and, and, and then rearrange the lips to, to his performance. But largely they all came on, yeah, uh, late in the process. Yeah, I was. I, I wanted to ask about this because I, I assumed, uh, knowing how a little bit about how rotoscope works, that you basically would have to get them to act to the action on screen, which is, yep. as you say, not how uh, voice anima- voice acting and, and animation usually works, right? Yeah, not at all. But, you know, it is, it is to the credit of the actors that they... Uh, you know, the, the voice actors, that they m- managed to make those performances their own in, in ways that were really, uh, I mean, shocking and gratifying to me. Because, like, we, li- we lived with those original performances, the motion capture performances that had an audio component for them to them for years. And, and so, though, you know, for everybody working on the project, those sort of were the characters. So to then suddenly have Lucy Lawless come and, and put her own spin on the character managed to fit the lip sync and also bring a different emotionality to it was really impressive. I mean, it, kudos yeah. to all of them. They, it was not, again, not a standard process for them, but all of them did fantastic work. So. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the movie itself a little bit here, because I, uh, I I will include a trailer in the in this email so everybody can, you know, watch the trailer and get a small sense of it. But uh, give me give me the the 60 second elevator pitch <laughs> on the spine of night. How would you describe this to somebody if you were trying to convince them to watch it? Oh, sweet Jesus. OK, <laughs> so this is um, do we swear on this podcast? You can swear. That's right. <laughs> this is a fucking hard question is what this is. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Spine of Night is a sword and sorcery dark fantasy film that has a vaguely anthological structure. So what you're going to be told are stories from across a vast timeline in a fantasy world. And they largely involve a magical flower that has been stolen from a mountaintop uh, and the various evil ways that is being used over the ages. Uh, It's a story of, to to make it sound slightly more interesting, (laughs) it's a story of a necromancer, uh, a librarian adventurer, a barbarian, three strange assassins who dress like birds, and it's very gory and also very naked. There are yep. more animated dicks in this movie than 
I I can almost guarantee anybody has ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, the, the, this is a I believe it's not rated, but if it's it were rated, to be no. rated, it would be a hard R shading toward NC-17, probably. Yes. Hence the when, hence the no rating. I when would we sold the movie, they had the um, in the ride, you know, in the short form, it was like it, it said in there it needed to be cleared for an R rating. And that was my only pushback on that particular contract was like, I can't I can't guarantee that we can get an R rating on this movie. And I also don't. Given the amount of time it took to animate it, we're not going to cut anything to make it in our rating. So we need to, it needs to be right. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to, I assume animating dicks is very time consuming (laughs) and you don't, you don't want to lose that important work. You can't Uh, lose a single dick. It's just, it's a, it's an important part of the creative process. (laughs) I, uh, no, it is, it is, again, it's, it's a hard, this is not, you know, you're not, this is not a double feature with Encanto with the kids. Uh, don't, uh, don't sit, sit them down to, to watch it. If you uh, rent it on VOD, um, uh, so it's, just so FYI, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing that I've encountered a lot now in the way that my career has gone, where the perception of animation remains in the United States, largely that it's for children. So mm-hmm. I, I've got a number of examples of this, but my favorite example of it is that the movie played in a theater in the small town where I'm from, this small town of Wisconsin, it's like 50,000 people. And I, like, I had to ask the theater, will you please play my movie? And they were like, oh yeah, that'd be great. So then like my family who still lives there put it on Facebook, the movie's going to play. And then the pastor of the church that I went to when I was a kid <laughs> was like, Oh, maybe my son can bring my grandchildren to see it. And I and my my brother-in-law to his credit had to be like, you know, like edit the post and be like, for the record, this animated film is not for children. Yeah. Please please do not, especially if you are a pastor at a church, please do not bring your <laughs> your grandchildren to see this movie. It's not it's yeah. not for them. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because it is it is interesting the the kind of wide wider world of animation um, that I think streaming has helped uh, helped with a little bit, but also just the the kind of evolving norms on animation and in films. Um, you you work on Love, Death, and Robots, which is a very successful, very popular uh, show on Netflix. Again, it's a, I would say the shorthand is basically animated Black Mirror. It's a little more complicated than that, but you know, there's a lot of confluence of technology and modernity and how yep. uh, all of that is working against us. You know, uh, I don't think, uh, but, but it is, but it is very, it, it is an adult show, even when the animation style is Pixar like, right. It, it is still, it's a very adult minded show. What, what is the response you get to things like that from, you know, standard audiences, but also studio execs? Are they saying like, oh, we need this to be, we need this to be for kids if this is going to be, you know, shown. Well, I mean, so for, for both for Love, Death and Robots and for, for Spine of Night, I mean, the idea was always that it was for adults. So it, it, you wouldn't get a lot of pushback, you know, once once you sort of reach the pitching stage. I mean, for both movies, like Spine of Night was made um, entirely independently. So we never had anybody say fewer dicks or less nudity or less violence. Uh, Love, Death and Robots, we haven't gotten really any pushback, again, because it was, you know, the, the pitch was always, this is going to be animation for adults. It's always going to be, you know, in, in the heavy metal vein. But what you do encounter is like other things that I brought up or other things that I pitched where where people don't quite understand what you mean when you say it's animation for adults. Like infamously, one of my other favorite stories is when we were trying to sell Spine of Night and we were talking to a sales agent and we are like, it's adult animation. And the sales agent was like, oh, adult animation. Great. That's huge, huge right now. We would love to see, we'd love to see it. And we're like, oh, that's amazing. We're so happy to hear that. And then the next thing they said was, can I watch it with my daughter? And you're like, well, no, you can't watch it with your daughter. And then they were like, well, 
but my daughter's seen Pinocchio. And it's like, well, this is, I mean, Pinocchio of the Disney films is relatively dark and adult, but it is, again, there, there is a ocean of difference between the scary whale sequence in Pinocchio, one of the most beautiful animated sequences ever for the record, and, you know, either Love, Death and Robots and, and, and Spine of Night. I mean, I, I hope that, you know, both projects and the various other adult animated things that are going on will help expand people's idea of what adult animation can be. Because I do think in particular, or maybe specifically in America, it is a thing that people just, again, the, the common perception is, and I think largely it's because of Disney, like these, these things are, it's a cartoon and it, therefore it's for kids. I mean, there are, I guess, some exceptions. Like for some reason, if you animate a sitcom like The Simpsons or Family Guy, then suddenly it's it's okay for it to be you know not not just for kids but mm-hmm. beyond the arrogance there's some adult swim stuff too but but other than that it, it's largely relegated culturally I think to that's that's for kids well but even even the Simpsons right and and Family Guy got pushback at the yeah. start because they were like oh well, why are you making this show for kids where you know there's, there's yeah, so yeah. much cursing and you yeah. know uh, bad behavior by the children aren't you setting a, a bad example <laughs> oh yeah that, that's true yeah I, I had forgotten just my mom wouldn't let me watch the Simpsons for years because. <laughs> Because she thought yeah. I was going to end up like Bart Simpson. Yeah. Yeah. First, yeah. I, I was not allowed to watch until the second or third season, I think. My parents were, you know, yeah. un, uncomfortable <laughs> with it. Uh, well, all right. Let's let's come back. Let's jump back to yeah. uh, making The Spine of Night. Because it, it is, it, it, this is a labor-intensive project, as you say. How long have you been doing the actual animation for it? Second question, yeah. sorry. Uh, is this just, is this, was, was this a spare time thing? Like you would sit down and do, you know, uh, 30 seconds of animation a night or, or was this was this an actual? Yeah. You know, so, so to job? be to be uh, entirely upfront, like I I can't draw for shit. So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't do any of the drawing, but it okay. took. Um, but Morgan, my co-director, did in fact did the majority of it. And for him, it was a full time gig. For him and the, a very small team of animators we managed to put together, um, we're working on it. I mean, Morgan was working on it for more than full time for about. I think it took us seven seven years roughly. Um, and you know, that's interesting too. It took us so long, you know, the art of rotoscoping, uh, to jump back to that for a second is largely like a discarded aesthetic is something I keep calling it, which is part of the reason I wanted to make the movie was because I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by that idea of like aesthetics that were a thing. And then for whatever reason, the culture just moved on and was like, Oh, we don't, we don't like that anymore. So Mm -hmm. that's always interesting to me. Um, so, when we tried to put our team together to animate it, we had this sort of heroic vision that we were going to put a, our, our first trailer out and there was going to be like this army of rotoscopers who were going to be like, finally, it's, it's time. Our project is here. We know how to do this. That did not happen. Uh, <laughs> what, what did happen is we you know, tried to hire people who were trained in more modern forms of animation and, uh, and tried to get them to work in the process that, that we developed. And by and large, you know, either they couldn't quite get it or they could get it and they just found it too labor intensive. So, you know, what we ended up doing was winnowing it down to the people that could could do the style and were willing to do the style. And it's a very sort of specialized skill set. So it was about three or four lead animators who did the vast majority of it. Again, over the course of seven years, we shot the live action in 2014. And then it took a couple months to edit together the live action. So we probably started animating at the, about the end of 2014 and then finished just before we premiered in March of 2021. So yeah, yeah, a long time. 
Yeah, that, I mean that's crazy. That's a that is a that's a that's a crazy amount of time. Yeah. Um. Uh. So you 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 do the animation and then you send out. Did you send out the like completed cut uh, to to folks like Richard Grant and uh, uh, Patton Oswalt or were, did you send just the script? I mean, how how did that work? Because it's yeah. like I said, you guys have a great cast here. I figured way way back when we started that nobody would ever again dead aesthetic, right? Nobody's a nobody's going to make a rotoscope movie and b nobody is going to make a fantasy film that's not based on any previous IP, which is what this is. Like, it's just, it's entirely its own thing. So by the time we got to the place where we were um, doing the voice cast, we had a pretty solid, maybe 45 minutes that were like visually completely done. So they had, the animation was done, they were, it was colored and it had our backgrounds in it. So we were able to send that to them so they could see like what the product was going to look like. They under, They understood that it wasn't just, you know, they understood what they were getting into mm-hmm. and then sent, and then sent the script. So, and you know, the thing about the rotoscope style is that it was like for a certain type of person, it hits a nostalgia chord, right? Because, you know, they, they grew up with heavy metal or they grew up with that, that backsheet Lord of the Rings. Um, and I think in, for a lot of the actors that, that was it, they were, you know, specifically for Patton and for Joe, you know, they're, they're both sort of dweebs and are well aware of like what, <laughs> what we were doing. Um, and, and just like Joe Manganiello said, when we met him to do the voice acting, he was like, oh yeah, I watched the first five minutes and thought to myself, this movie was made by crazy people and I want to work with crazy people. And I was like, that's maybe the greatest compliment I could, <laughs> I could be given um, specifically for this pro- project. So yeah, so we, we were able to send them, you know, they, they knew what they were getting into. Yeah. Uh, have you gone to Joe's uh, Dungeon and Dragons game? This is <laughs> no, no, no. I have not. I am okay. well aware of it, and I uh, <laughs> I hope one day to go, but I, I haven't been. No, sorry, I, I had to ask. Uh, uh, so, but uh, so so then, how does how does the actual recording work? I mean, did these folks record at home and send you? Uh, send you tapes. I assume, you know, this is the recordings being done in the midst of the pandemic. I assume everybody's not getting together yep. uh, at a studio somewhere. Yeah. So we, so for Joe and a couple of the other actors, we recorded them at the end of 2019. So actually like we were, I was in a studio with Joe uh, and some of the others, um, but for every, all the other name actors like Patton, Lucy, Richard, Larry Fessenden, and even re-recording Betty, those were all virtual. So mm-hmm. for Betty, uh, well, we we basically try, we tried to do it the real DIY way. Like we sent fancy microphones to everybody. I sent one to Lucy Lawless's house in New Zealand, and I sent one to Richard, and I sent one to. Actually, Patton didn't need one because Patton has a recording studio in his basement. Which is, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah nice, nice for him. Yeah. Uh, so, and then we tried to walk them through the tech setup, and then I, we would get on a Zoom call, and I would direct them, you know, with their microphone wherever they had. That didn't work out. Uh, I mean, Lucy, to her credit, was like. I got your microphone, but you know, I would, I would prefer it to go into a studio because I don't feel comfortable setting the microphone up. And luckily New Zealand was open enough at the time that we managed to get her into a studio, a place that she'd worked before and was comfortable with. So then we were on a zoom call like with the studio and I could, I could like see and hear her performance. What I couldn't judge was the lip sync because there's like a time delay between image and sound, but you know, it, it largely turned out great. Richard E. Grant, who's, I mean, just a lovely and fantastic human being. He did try to do the tech setup and then we had to make him do the whole thing over again because it didn't (laughs) sound good. And that was, I felt so bad. Uh, So we made him get 
I made him. We asked him <laughs> if he would please, uh, like, so for the first time we recorded, he was on vacation in the south of France. And I was like, oh, this is great. We'll just, it'll be fine. He sent it in. Our sound designers were like, this sounds this sounds bad. We can't use this. So <laughs> then I made my producer write a very apologetic email to Richard. And at that point he was back in London and there was a, uh, again, we were like, you know, cause they've all done this many times. We were like, what's the sound studio that you're comfortable with? Let us know. And we'll work with anybody that you're comfortable with. So there was one that he'd worked with that was open and he, um, yeah, he went in and that same thing. He was, uh, I think the performance was better the second time, but I definitely was like, oh, he's not happy with me right yeah. now but i think they contributed to the performance so it yeah. was it was good yeah well it's good he's great i mean yeah. every again the the voice work in this is is great uh and the the animation is is it, for a dead aesthetic it is a very interesting uh, uh style and and one that i think i think i i mean i'm i i think it is the sort of thing that will trigger a lot of nostalgia centers for people who, you know, grew up yeah. with kind of dorm room classics like uh, the, the Bakshi Lord of the Rings and, and heavy metal and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, some people, it, it's an interesting thing, the style. Like I, um, I like it obviously quite, quite a bit. I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess I love it. I mean, I love all animation, so it just feels weird to single it out, but, and some people really, really love it. And some people absolutely hate it. Like some people see it. I mean, I, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge this. Some people see it and are like, why would you, yeah. I, I even have friends who I send it to and I was like, here, check this movie out. And they were like, oh yeah, that movie was really cool. Too bad about that animation style though. And I was like, I may mean, appreciate your honesty, but, <laughs> but it's kind of part and parcel at this point. Like we can't, yeah. you know, we can't do anything else. So yeah. Uh, well, it's yeah. different. I mean, it's different. It's just a different look. It's, yep. it is something that, that takes a little getting used to if you're not, if you're not used to it. Let's talk about fundraising yep. because I, this is, this is, you know, it's a long-term project. Uh, you know, voice actors aren't working for free, yep. uh, no matter how much they love it, I'm sure. How did you guys actually raise the money for this? Right. Was this, uh, yeah, I mean, so we started, uh, entirely self-funded basically. Like I saw a short film that Morgan had made again, way back in 2013. And at the time, I'd you know been a screenwriter for a little while, but I hated the industry in general. I still have, I think, a pretty fraught relationship with it. But at the time, I was particularly pissed at various things. So I, um, so I saw his short film and was like, I just sent him an email and said, "Hey, I love this short film. Let's get together and let's figure out how to do something." And so pretty quickly, the idea became to what would become the Spine of Night. Um, and I. I mean, I guess, cause I'm an insane person. I was like, let's just start. We'll just, we'll just, we'll, we'll put a little bit of money together. We'll rent the studio. We'll hire, we'll hire some actors. I mean, so that initial live action shoot was not expensive at all. Cause it was, mm -hmm. I mean, it was like me and a, um, a DSLR, uh, a Canon 4D or something, a couple of lights and some costumes. And, the, you know, we basically paid those actors not very much, but, you know, fed them well, like did the Wes Anderson <laughs> thing where like everybody got a, a, a nice meal and it was a very like, a very friendly, very fun shoot where it was like, oh, there are D&D books and magic cards and all kinds yeah. of nerd stuff. And we shoot these scenes and it's great. And that model basically carried us through the first couple of years, basically of us. It was self-funded. Like we would cobble the money together wherever we could and that would um, pay Morgan and whatever animators we could hire. And then at a certain point, we needed more money because, you know, it's sure. it's not cheap animation. So. Yeah. It was at that point that we made the decision to that we would have to cast up the actors to you know to bring some names in, and then those two things sort of happened you know, like with like with other movies, it's like you have some people who are like oh we can give you some money if you can get some actors names attached, and then you know it's sort of like that weird 
stepladder thing happens where you, where you get the actors and then you get the money and then you can finish the thing. So, yeah. and at that point, you know, we, as I say, we, because we were independently funded at the beginning, at that point, we were basically able to say to anybody who's going to come on, we're like, the project is the project. We're not going to make it less naked or less violent <laughs> than it is. So either you're, you're on board for what this is or, or you're not, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's that's basically how we put it together. Well, let's and let's talk about distribution because just getting distribution is always hard. Nobody, yeah. it's 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 always a tough thing. Um, how did how did how did you guys uh, wrangle that? Yeah, so we uh, we did a pretty traditional like indie film thing, right? Where we submitted to um, festivals, we got into South by Southwest, uh, and we also at that point had a sales agent. These guys, Yellow Veil, um, who are great, they do a lot of genre stuff. And so then we sold the movie out of South by to uh, to RLJ, which was mm-hmm. uh, which is great. It's a perfect home for it. I mean, it's it is we're not Mandy, but we're Mandy adjacent. I mean, like they're, we're very different movies, but I think if you like Mandy, you're probably going to find something to love in in Spine of Night. Um, the thing that's been really interesting is, well, a couple things. I mean, we, well, I'm I'm talking about theatrical, but I also want to talk about international. Like the international thing, it is fascinating to me. Like I, I am a little, like we've sold some international territories, um, not all of them, and so what we've ended up doing now is we're working through like an aggregator that was just going to like put us up on iTunes and Amazon and basically everywhere in the world and then just sort of see how it works, um, which I'm excited about, but also a little bit nervous about because, you know, it would be nicer to have, maybe nicer sure. to have a local distributor. The other thing that's fascinating to me is we know that we have a lot of fans uh, in Russia because of because Morgan's YouTube page gets that he can see the analytics. So it's like America is the most watchers and then below that is Russia. And then there's like a huge drop off for the rest of the country. So, or rest hmm. of the world. So, and, and he gets a lot of Russian comments that he, uh, that he has, um, verified to not be trolls. Like these are actually Russian people who have watched the movie and are excited sure. about it, but getting distribution in Russia is really, really hard. Like, hmm. like shockingly hard. Um, and you mean theatrical or streaming I mean, or both? I, I mean anything, anything. like anything. Uh, and I, I can't really explain it. Like even, you know, my incredulity, I was like, well, you like it, surely there must be an, an iTunes store in Russia. Like surely Apple must be in, in Russia. And as far as I can tell, they are, but, and I, I swear this is what I've been told. There are two guys who control, it's so Russian, two guys who control the iTunes store for movies in Russia. And you have to call them. And if they pick up, maybe they'll put your movie on the, on the iTunes store in Russia. And maybe they won't. And, like, and, that, and that's it. So I... Uh, <laughs> that's very post-Soviet. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. So we're still working on Russia. Like we have Polish, we have an actual Polish dis- distributor and, and you know, other East Bloc stuff. But I'm, I remain annoyed and frustrated that in the 21st century you can't just click a button and have your movie up everywhere like it just it seems like we should be in a place where that's possible Um, and is that that's interesting i've i've never i've never had somebody tell me this before because it is i I guess i've just never thought about it because i mean most of the big movies get releases in russia i see box office numbers come in from russia and and but i didn't i i've never really thought about the bureaucracy of getting a you know yeah, digital release it's, it's it's a thing it it shouldn't be a thing but it is a thing it's so it's so weird yeah. uh and then i mean yeah we've we've been knocking on that russian door for for oh, months now trying to figure out how to do it and, and so far 
all of our attempts have been frustrated. We tried to get it released in China too, but uh, like I've worked with Chinese companies uh, in video games and, and stuff. So I've, I've like tried to use my Chinese contacts and invariably what I get is, oh, you would need to cut this movie severely <laughs> to even get yeah. on any kind of like any kind of release at all. Even to get in a film festival there, like you would need to cut basically everything in this, in this movie. Yeah. So that's not going to happen. Well, that- I mean, that's that's also interesting. I mean, China, I know a little bit better than Russia. China, the Chinese government is not huge on magic no. uh, and nudity no. uh, also. Nope. And I imagine I imagine the violence nope. is probably I was going to say a... everything that is in the movie, every every shot of the movie probably <laughs> contains one of those three things. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so probably not. I mean, the other thing about Russia, I guess, is that they, for whatever reason, just this past year decided to really start to censor animation like they you, you can't watch Akira in Russia. Like Akira came out, yeah. what, 20, 30 years ago, 30 yeah. years ago, something like that. And so, yeah. yeah, so adult animation, I guess, just in general in Russia, for some reason has become suddenly a thing that, that the government thinks shouldn't be released. So anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Is that a, is that a part of their efforts to stop the, you know, the corruption of the youth? I know that's a, that's a big thing in, in Russia right my, now. That's my suspicion. Uh, yeah. I haven't looked deeply enough beyond the, like, me being annoyed that it affects me personally. <laughs> I'm selfish enough that, like, you know, I want to corrupt the Russian youth, but I, I <laughs> I'm not being allowed. <laughs> oh boy! Don't want to don't want to get Putin hearing that on this show. Well, I look here's it's a really interesting movie. Again, it's it's it is not it's not going to be for everyone. Uh, and I just I want to warn people about that right now. But as 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 a lover of animation myself, and as somebody who has always been kind of into rotoscoping, I greatly enjoyed this kind of nostalgic trip. I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If there's anything you want to tell people about the, the movie or the world of animation, or just really anything that you think folks should know? Uh, what should I have asked? What do you What do you want people to know? Well, so first of all, I would say I think that 2021 was a little bit of a banner year for indie adult animation in the U.S. Like we, we Spine of Night, um, Dash Shaw's movie CryptoZoo came out, which was also, you know, an indie animated film. And Phil Tippett finally finished his Mad God movie. So I feel like there is a like people should just be aware that if they're at all curious about the world of indie American animation, it's out there for for them to discover. I guess I would also say, you know, so say I don't want to be anti Disney. Disney's great, but there's a whole other mode of animation for that people I think should expose themselves to. Admittedly, our, the bar for entry for our movie is maybe a little high given the content. But if you're at all curious about, if you're at all a fan of like fantasy films or Game of Thrones, or, you know, remember watching E-Man as a kid, or maybe still play D&D, I think it's probably a movie that that you should at least check out, even if it's just to see if it's your your bag or not, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, let me let me ask just one follow-up on that. Where, where What are some of the best places to go to find uh, non-Disney or DreamWorks uh, yeah. animation, right? I mean, there's, uh, we talked about Netflix's, uh, the show you do with Netflix, yeah. but where, where else should people go? The one thing I would add is that there's this whole one thing we haven't talked about is that like, you know, this this adult animation issue that we've been talking about is really, I think, almost specifically an American issue. Like if you look at Japan, the, the Japanese um, appreciation for animation is obviously a huge age range. So, you know, I guess anime is one place, one obvious place you could go and look. Um, but if you're looking for more domestic stuff, if you go on to Vimeo, uh, the Vimeo streaming site, they do a great job of curating animation. They do like staff picks of, uh, of their favorites. You could go, if you have the Criterion streaming service, they 
I don't know if it's still up, but last month or two months ago, they had a really great selection of, it was all just in indie animation stuff. You can look at, I mean, there's a number of features that you could watch, like the Bakshi stuff. Um, Son of the White Mare is a, an older movie that came, that would just got a really great release um, that, they could, that you can check out. I think those are the main places that I would suggest, okay. you know? Um, cool. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Uh, well, Phil, thank you for being on the show. Again, uh, the name of the movie, uh, The Spine of Night. Uh, go check it out. It's on VOD now. You can get it uh, in the United States, not in <laughs> Russia or China. But if, you, Sorry, if, you live in, if you're listening to this in the United States, you can, you can find it on VOD, uh, the VOD platform of your choice. My name is Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.